Welcome to The Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world. This is a special series of conversations about how Black and white women are navigating anti-racism. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. On each of these special episodes, I'll be in conversation with a Black, Indigenous, or woman of color colleague, and together we'll explore anti-racism and racial justice, what it means not only in the big picture, but how our daily lives are impacted, what we're reading, what we're doing, and where we go from here. The Liberatory Consciousness Framework, created by organizational development consultant Barbara J. Love, was recently presented by Erica Hines of Every Level Leadership at a small business community forum on racial justice organized by Rachel Rogers. The framework has four parts, awareness, analysis, action, and accountability slash allyship. As Erica Hines emphasized in her presentation, many of us aren't ready for action yet because we haven't completed the work in the awareness and analysis stages. This special series is part of my effort to raise awareness and engage in the analysis. There's a list of anti-racism resources at wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. And you can check out all the past episodes of The Well Woman Show featuring Black, Indigenous, and women of color at wellwomanlife.com slash women of color. This special series on anti-racism is part of the Podcasters for Justice campaign. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many, many others at the hands of the police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we're committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black lives matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are witnesses to it. In creating digital media, we have built audiences that return week after week to hear our voices and we'll use our voices to speak against anti-blackness and police brutality and we encourage our audiences to be educated engaged and to take action here are three things you can do right away the first is donate to any of the following funds george floyd memorial fund minnesota freedom fund black visions collective campaign zero or black lives matter number two sign a petition you can text Floyd to 55156 to sign a petition to demand justice for George Floyd. Number three, you can sign up at Color of Change to be notified of more opportunities to take action. You can find all of these links on the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash podcast. On the Well Woman Show this week, I share part three in a series of conversations with Black, Indigenous, and women of color colleagues and friends. And together we explore anti-racism and racial justice, what it means not only in the big picture, but how our daily lives are impacted, what we're reading, what we're doing, and where we go from here. This week, I'm in conversation with my colleague, Tamara Thorpe, and we explore racial justice from our unique perspectives and lived experiences. Tamara is best known as the Millennials Mentor and is a recognized thought leader in next generation leadership. She is the founder of Real Leadership, a dynamic and compassionate approach to leadership, creating culturally smart and inclusive leaders. 
All the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 216 show, including links to the first episode and the resource list on anti-racism, as well as the list of interviews with women of color on The Well Woman Show, and how to join our community on Facebook. Again, you can go to wellwomanlife.com slash 216 show for all of those links. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking with Tamara on the Well Woman Show on our special series. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. Yeah, me too. So what do you want to talk about? <laughs> Offline, we were talking about kind of what this special series is, and it's it's really just sort of a conversation about what we as white a white woman and Black Indigenous women of color are kind of up to in the space of racial justice. And so the the floor is wide open. We can talk about all the topics, any of the topics. What have you been up to? Is there anything you want to share in particular? So it's been an interesting time. And I will say, you know, for different reasons, you know, I identify as a Black woman with mixed heritage. I also, by profession, in the leadership and intercultural space, which also includes some equity, diversity, and inclusion work. And one of the interesting things that has emerged this time is that there's been an incredibly huge demand that's been put on practitioners, equity, diversity, and inclusion practitioners, who for the most part are practitioners of color. Um, And that has been, you know, twofold, right? Like people are always happy to get business, right? But it's also in some ways quite frustrating that a lot of us who've been doing this work and having companies and organizations not prioritize it, that you know, the sense of urgency has now, you know, made a priority and it put a demand on us that goes back to the burden really falling on people of color. And and we as practitioners in the DNI space have been trying to have that conversation about what that looks like in terms of how we're taking care of ourselves, in terms of how we're managing the business, in questioning what business is being referred to us, what business isn't being referred to us, calls that we're getting for our expertise kind of like we'll, we'll we'll own it and we'll do it but you know we'd like your sort of black stamp of approval on this was kind of an offer that I got that he was quite surprised that I turned down and and again also on the personal side that as the black lives matter movement happened on a global scale and I being part of a larger global community having lots of people reach out to me on a very personal level with questions, with needs for resources and things like that. So there's this sense of urgency coming from non-Black Indigenous people of color to want to respond and react. Um, That has really burdened Black Indigenous people of color. And and it's one of those things that I'm sure you've heard it, it comes up, right? Uh, That we don't have the problem, right? Like we are victims of the problem, right? So we as the sort of recipients and victims of the problem are expected to resolve the problem. And that's why for me, having the conversation around whiteness and white supremacy and how that shows up and how that's problematic and upholds 
systems and structures and institutions that affect Black, Indigenous people of color, to me, that's the larger conversation. (laughs) That's where, right, like that's the cause, right? Like racism's the symptom of those things. So for me, in a way, like I'm very excited to have this conversation with white people, but I want to have that conversation. I don't want to have a conversation about my trauma. I don't want to have a conversation about what racism feels like or the racism that I've experienced. Like, I think we all know at this point what it looks like and what it feels like for people from, you know, everyday racism to witnessing George Floyd being murdered on the streets, right? So it runs the gamut. But how how do we really start having a conversation about white supremacy and whiteness um, as a way to really dismantle what's happening and dismantle institutional and systemic racism? So I would like to have that conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay. So let's have that conversation because I just want to pick up on something that you said about the demands being put on particularly professionals in the diversity and equity and inclusion space. But I I also see a lot of demands being put on just Black, Indigenous, people of color that aren't necessarily identifying as experts in that space, but they're expected to all of a sudden be experts in that space. So that's also an an interesting kind of uh, thing that is happening. But yeah, I I see the the need to talk about whiteness and white supremacy and, and white privilege. And it's interesting because to me, it's almost like the white dominant groups that are, that are wanting to check the box to say, we've done our race equity work or we've done the diversity training or whatever. Um, As you brought up, you were, someone proposed this to you to kind of get your black stamp of approval. It it does seem that some of, of the white dominant groups are really needing or wanting or thinking that they need uh, black leaders or or black indigenous people of color um, stamp of approval or, or, or somehow including them whether it's as a token or or more inclusive, but they they're thinking that they do need to include that voice in order for it to be legitimate. And yeah. what would you say to that? Because then if if white people say, well, let's go and do the work because it's our problem and they don't include black voices, then that's that also could be a problem. So I think it goes to intention, right? So that if the intention is we want to, if the intention is genuine and the goal is listening and learning, then that has to, then that has to happen, right? But more often than not, it's a tick box. So then when people of color show up and say, hey, this is my perspective, that's when white fragility emerges and then that takes over the agenda, right? And that's when everybody becomes very, you know, the white dominant group, some, not all, may then become defensive and feel that they're, you know, being mislabeled a racist or, all, you know, all the things that come up. And so that's the challenge that one, I, I 100% believe 
that there's work white folks need to do themselves, right? Um, and some of it is very simple. Don't ask us which anti-racism books to read. You can Google that. You don't need me to take time out of whatever I'm doing for something you can Google, right? So that's stuff white folks can do with themselves. I also think white folks within their organizations, within their families, within their networks, can start having conversations about what does it mean to be white? What does whiteness look like? How does that show up in my language and my relationships and my attitudes and my conscious and unconscious bias? And this is work you can do on a very interpersonal level and your interrelationship level that doesn't require anything from Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, I think when organizations or groups are looking to do things on scale, then I think it is important to look at how we have representative voices. But more importantly, it's that that invitation is genuine and that when people show up, that they are allowed to show up as their full selves. And if showing up as their full selves and being honest about their experiences hurts a white person, then that white person must live with that pain because that pain is something you can get through and learn from and, and is important to get to the other side of. But defending and reflecting and pushing back only perpetuates and upholds white supremacy and silences the voices of Black, Indigenous, people of color. And that's how people end up feeling excluded, tokenized, otherized, and then as though the effort was not genuine. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think you've hit on a lot of different things around white fragility, right? And white yeah. privilege. And so what comes to mind when when I hear you talking about that is this idea that white people, when they are acting fragile about things, you know, they have their feelings hurt or somehow it's uncomfortable. Um, and and so they go through some sort of personal growth thing that happens. And it's almost like some people just stop there. Like, well, I've done this personal growth, you know, in terms of like, I, I felt emotional about it. Therefore I'm done. Like, okay. Like I felt these emotions now I'm over it and now let's move on. And, and I, I feel like that's just the beginning. Right. And, and this space is not for white people to do personal self-help work. Although that does help. We know that yeah. it does take a lot of self-reflection and and personal growth to to really look at this, um, but it doesn't stop there. Like that's just the beginning. Yeah, and it and so it's like you said, like get you know get through it, get to the other side without being defensive. Um, and you know, I I I'm gonna say like be a you know, people are emotional. They're gonna be emotional. I don't know. People are going to cry. Um, that's happened, you know, in recent like groups that I've been in. 
Uh, but, but it can't just be that, like, it can't just be like, okay, now I cried and now I'm, I'm done. Like, well, and, and the crying is, is, and, and I mean this with the best of intentions, right? The crying really has to be explored, right? Because, you know, I am 50 years old. I have lived a very long life and I have lived the majority of my life in, in majority white spaces. And I have never been afforded the privilege to cry or be emotional in any sort of group or semi-professional or professional setting without being accused of being aggressive, angry, controlling, manipulative, unprofessional and being rebuked by the entire group for a display of emotion. So when a white woman is able to do that, particularly in a space where there are people of color, really frustrating and in some cases traumatizing because it, it again is an enactment of privilege that people are then expected to respond to with kindness and empathy that has never been afforded to people of color, particularly women of color, particularly, and you know, many women, right? And so that the, the tears, which, you know, in, in the work of white privilege and white fragility that we talk about white tears, um, they, they are often weaponized, Right. And I, I certainly know as a woman raised in the United States that we are taught that our tears can be really powerful. Right. And women weaponize tears against men all the time. And any woman who wants to act like she didn't cry in front of a man to get something is in a little bit of denial. And, but it's part of how we're cultured, culturized in U.S. culture. By white supremacy. <laughs> by white supremacy. Right. And and then you know, white women are able to use that privilege in other spaces where black indigenous women of color are not allowed to use it. So I I think we have to be aware that when we are having an emotional reaction, what the impact is going to be and ensuring that that emotional reaction of owning it and being able to call it what it is, right? And, And I think that if because the tears come from either one being weaponized or two they come from a feeling of guilt or shame or embarrassment right, right? and and it's because people interpret conversations about whiteness and white privilege as a personal attack And it's not, right? We're not, when you're in conversations, particularly in groups, particularly in training settings or dialogue settings where that's the purpose of the conversation, talking about whiteness and white fragility and white culture and white privilege and white supremacy, these are important topics about a culture and a group of people And it isn't personal individual attacks, but because whiteness has always been the default or the norm, 
white folks have had the privilege of being individuals their entire life. Because I always think it's a funny thing. How for centuries in the U.S., people have been talking about black folks for a long time, right? I grew up (laughs) and people saying, what are you? Are you black? Are you mixed? What are you? People wanting to know, wanting me to tell them. So people have been comfortable using the word black and talking about blackness their whole lives or whatever it is, talking about the other. And now that the dominant group is part of the conversation and having their culture and the impact and influence of their culture on others, all of a sudden it's a personal attack, right? And I think what's important is for people to remove their personal values and beliefs because very often how our whiteness, right? How one's whiteness shows up is in conflict with their personal values and beliefs. Right. And that's the, that's the whole like confusing part of this that gets very muddled, which is like, you know, if you talk about racism or white supremacy, uh, some white people will think, well, you're talking about the KKK and I'm not a racist and, and how dare you call me that. And, and so that, that's, you know, teasing out the individual, like, well, I, I think everyone should be equal. I'm not a racist. So teasing out the individual beliefs. And, uh, and of course there are people who would stand there and say, no, I don't think everyone's equal and I am a racist. So, you know, (laughs) but but so teasing out that individual from the systemic issue yeah. of we're all racist because right. we are all socialized in this racist system, in this system right. that is white supremacist and white dominated and, and specifically white male cisgender yes. Yes. dominated. White, cis, hetero, male, Christian, yeah. <laughs> right. It's all of those. And I, and I think that, you know, it's because I do a lot of work in the intercultural world and in the intercultural world, we talk about U.S. culture and German culture, Chinese culture, Indian culture. And, you know, we train business professionals. If you're going to go work in India, here are sort of the cultural attributes you need to know. And no, not everybody fits into it. These are norms. These are standards. These are patterns. These are practices that you will see and you will encounter. And then somehow when the culture becomes black and white, people are like, oh, no, white culture doesn't exist. Oh, black culture. We know that, you know, you have your music, you have, you know, people sort of can yeah, can stick their finger on it. But then what it's like, but I'm white. I don't have culture. We're so, you know, we're so ordinary. We're so plain. We're so, no, that's not what's happening. And it's it's because it's the default, like you said. Right. It's the default culture. It's the dominant culture, and so that that folks in that group don't think that there's anything. It, it's not other, right? It's not right. other. They, they've never had to had to explain it, right? And that's what I always say in my intercultural work. One of the things that makes living in another country difficult for people or challenging and also what makes it interesting is learning how people do things in different parts of the world. But very often what we do in one part of the world, we take for granted because it's so ordinary that when we discover that's unusual to another culture, we're like, oh, well, we didn't realize. So I was just talking, I had uh, a couple of friends over 
And uh, one was from Scotland, one was from the US and they arrived and I said, oh, well, let me show you around the house. And my friend from Scotland said, oh my God, is, is that okay? And I said, oh yeah, it's the thing we do in the US. I don't know why we do it, but when people come to our house, we show them around the house, right? That's so funny, yes. <laughs> that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, right? It is a cultural thing we do in the U.S. that doesn't happen anywhere else. Because years ago, I had a student from Japan say to me, how come Americans show me their house? And I was like, I don't know. It's a thing we do. <laughs> I'm sure it's, you know, deeply connected to one of our core values around individuality and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's such a funny thing. So, so we accept, right? I accept as a U.S. American that there are lots of things that I do differently from other people in the world because I'm from the U.S. I also accept that as somebody who has lived a Black experience and have a connection to that culture and those people, that there are values and beliefs and behaviors because of my Blackness that have shaped my life and I do things differently. And then also because I'm biracial and was raised by a white parent. I have had access to whiteness and white privilege. Um, and, and, I, and I get how that shows up. And I, you know, and I, in my own journey, have had to challenge my able-bodied, able-minded bias and view and privilege, right? And all that comes with that. And I, because I realize I've got U.S. privilege, I've got able-bodied privilege, I have cis-hetero privilege, and I'm aware of that. And I have to do the work <laughs> to, you know, deconstruct some of that stuff that's in my head so that I am able to understand the experiences of others and recognize my privilege. And, and that's really what the invitation to have conversations about whiteness and white supremacy are, right? There's two parts. One of it is we have got to find solutions to systemic racism because it's literally killing people, right? So we have to find solutions. The other is that it really is an invitation to ask people to start to challenge values, beliefs, and behaviors in our culture and our society that intentionally and unintentionally harm other people. And it is, I realize that the majority of people, it is not their intention to harm. But when I say what you just did or said caused harm to me, then the response should be, my bad. Can you give me more information about that so I don't do that again? And let's make this a learning moment for everybody, right? And by the way, I'm sorry about that, right? Right. I mean, I remember years ago at One Million Cups, I was there with a very good friend who is an incredible person. And she and I were having a conversation with two other black men. And she said something. She stuck her foot in it, like stuck her foot in it, right? And I turned around and I was like, what did you just say? And she looked at me and she's like, oh, my God. And she looked at the men and she said, I am so sorry. And I said, you know, and I said, do you get what just happened? And she said, yeah, like that was racist that was biased it came out of my mouth I don't know where it came from I get it sorry yeah and it was done right, right? there was no 
And literally the four of us moved on to an entirely new conversation. I went and had another conversation with those two men to talk about something and they never brought it up. Like we all moved on. Yeah. Right. No tears, no anger, like just own it because she owned it and took responsibility and, and dealt with it. Yeah. You know, Desiree Attaway with the Attaway group, she does Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, training and she just did a whole series on whiteness at work, which was very good. And we, we did that with our team at Family Friendly New Mexico. And anyway, one of the trainers in that talked about intention versus impact, right? Like, and it's just one of those things that we just need to learn about and, and embody and start practicing. And when you do something that has impacted someone instead of getting defensive and and backtracking and trying to excuse yourself, you just simply own it and apologize for it. That makes a big difference. Yeah. It's one of the, um, cause I don't know, uh, cause I know that gets used a lot and I, I use the intention impact in my conflict resolution work. And it's one of my favorite things to teach. And I don't know if, this came up in the training you were in, but when I am teaching people about intention and impact, one of the things that I share with people that I think is the crucial sort of trick, right, to understanding intention and impact, right, that, of course, we all have an intention, and very often what we intend to do and the impact of what we did are not aligned, and it's important that we then own the impact and recognize that there was a gap, right? I always say if there's a gap between what you intended and what the impact is, you got to own the gap no matter how good your intention was. Right. But the funny thing about humans is that when we are in relationship with other people and we cause harm, in our impact. We judge ourselves by the intention, right? Don't be mad. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Please don't be mad. No, you know, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Every single person listening, we have all said, that's not what I meant. Don't be mad at me. Or you can't be mad at me. That's not what I meant, right? Because when our impact is negative, we judge ourselves by our intention. But when someone's impact causes harm to us, we judge them by their in, uh, by their impact. Yeah. Right. So I don't care what you meant. You hurt me. Yeah. Right. So we have this weird thing as humans that we expect to be judged on our intention, but we judge others on their impact. So I always tell people the trick is to flip that around and learn to judge yourself by your impact and judge others by their intention. And if you can do that, you can walk out of almost any conflict hole. Oh, I love that. Great, simple reframe. That's an awesome takeaway for for our conversation here. Um, I love that. And also, I wanted to just pick up on, you said there's two things. There's an invitation here for, for two things. One is to find solutions to systemic racism. Yeah. And the other is to challenge values, beliefs, and behaviors on an individual level. And of course, those are interrelated, right? Because we can't impact systems without changing individual behavior. But there are also other systems level things that need to happen. And I don't know if you're aware, because you do a lot of work in New Mexico, but the governor of New Mexico um, 
just appointed a great big uh, council on racial equity yes. or racial justice. And, um, you know, she says, I, I want to hear, I want to listen. And that is a great first thing to want to do. You know, I, I just wonder, what do you think about the work of that council in order to be effective in, and she gave them a, a lofty kind of mission. I mean, they're going yeah. to, they're going to fix, you know, systemic racism for all state institutions. And, and that's big. Yeah, I, I, I saw, I mean, I saw the announcement I saw the call for folks. I even encouraged some folks to step forward. Um, I then saw the the publishing of the names, very impressive people. Um, And I think that, do I think it's a great first step? Yes. Are there really high expectations? Absolutely. Um, And this, is it important to have this work done by the governor at the state level? A hundred percent. And I think that this is, you know, what we're talking about is, is there's no single person, no single effort that is going to resolve this, right? And I think that it, it to have large efforts like this with groups of great people saying here are areas where we can do better and and get some work done, I think is really crucial. And I also think that New Mexico is filled with what I mean. I think it's I don't know if the statistic is still in effect, but New Mexico has like more nonprofits per capita than any other state. Right. That. There's a lot of organizations and businesses doing a lot of work that could be doing their own work, right? That, you know, it, what kind of um, experiences are people having as a customer in your business? What kind of experiences is your team having? What are policies and practices that are in place that might be unintentionally upholding white supremacy? I mean, you, the work that you do with families, I mean, that is so crucial. Uh, years ago, um, Eddie Moore Jr. is the founder of the White Privilege Conference. And the first year I moved to New Mexico, the White Privilege Conference was held in Albuquerque. And I was so great. I was so privileged and great that I got to go because I just moved in Albuquerque. I didn't know anybody. And I went to this conference and Eddie Moore Jr., who follow him on Facebook, go to the White Privilege Conference, do it, do it, do it, um, had said that part of the at the conference he was speaking, he said part of the problem with our attempts to dismantle racism is that the systems and structures in place were never built for anyone else but white men. So we are trying to constantly undo, remake, reshape things that were never designed for women and Black, Indigenous people of color to be a part of. And so when you are in the work that you do where you're having to go to the state and go to organizations and say, what are you doing for families? They never intended workers to have to accommodate for families because they never intended for women to be workers. Right. And so, and it's the same, they never um, just, I'm currently writing a paper about belonging in the workplace um, and, and was citing, right. That what organizations are, are and are not doing. Right. I mean, think about it. 
that we have had multiple states in the last two years actually have to create legislation that allows black women to wear their natural hair at work. I know. And it's like just the fact that we have to write legislation to do that is a should be a big alarm bell. Your point about this the the system was never set up for fairness and equality, yet we're kind of like founded on this idea that, you know, we need to be striving for equality for everybody, but it's it's really not rooted in no, it wasn't the plan. It, it wasn't the plan. That was not the founder's plan, right? So then can we piecemeal a solution or do we have to dismantle everything and start over? I, I think both, right? I think that there are some things that we can probably piecemeal. I mean, we have slowly, right? But it's all temporary. The Voting Rights Act was temporary, right? Like everything that protects women's rights is temporary. I don't know how these laws go in and they were suddenly temporary, right? So I think that, you know, these are things we have to be cognizant of. So it's things like you have to vote, right? You have to, you, right? It's like, do you have, you have to be willing to have difficult conversations. You have to be willing to learn and educate yourself. You have to be willing to vote. You have to be willing to ask difficult questions. Uh, you have to be willing to listen. These are all things that that need to happen. And, and I think particularly in our organizations and nonprofit sector, we, if the last year or the last 10 years has not taught us anything, they have taught us that organizations can look and run differently, right? So we know, for example, from tech and innovation, that organizations are structuring themselves entirely different today than before, right? Jobs exist today that didn't exist a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, because organizations are taking different things into account. They're restructuring. You have, you know, there's tons of books on, you know, how organizations can restructure and flatten the hierarchy and have more equality in the organization. And I think that we we have seen that. And in the last year, we have all learned that we can all work remotely. Right. I mean, this is the thing is, you know, working, telecommuting and working remotely and flexible scheduling has been something that, of course, we've been working on for years in the family economic security space and, and workplace wellness and workplace policies for you know, that benefit families and children and, 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 and people who are disabled, right? Yeah. It was the largest unemployed population, you know, in the U S and probably on globally, and they've been denied the right to work at home. And just years. like that, we have had to figure it out. Right. And, yeah, and, and people the, figured it out. Yeah. People figured it out in a week. And so, but part of the question is like, how can we figure out some of those big issues and big solutions without a pandemic. (laughs) Well, and part of it is this, it's, you know, I, I, in my leadership workshops, I do a lot around leading change and change management. And there's a guy named John Cotter and he created the eight step Cotter's eight step principle to change. And that's K O T T E R. Um, And In that, the first step is to create a sense of urgency, right? Because people will change when there is an urgency. We have seen that, right? That for years, we've been trying to convince people to remote work. People have been resistant, resistant, resistant. And as soon as there was urgency, suddenly everybody was able to do it. People have complained. Some people have, you know, pissed and moaned about it, but people did it. 
But one of the things that I find so fascinating about change is when I do workshops and training on change and I ask people that I do exercises on change, most people associate change with loss. Though I do an exercise where I ask people to change something about their appearance and nine out of 10 people start to remove things rather than adding things. Oh, interesting mindset work. So that then you, right? So then that's where you have to help people reframe that. What if change was about gaining something? And what if we thought if we change, what could we gain? So if rather than spending thousands of dollars on office space, right? And we had people working remotely, we could use those funds for retreats, family leave, you know, like all the things that people need to be whole human beings, um, right? There's there's so much that could be gained. And I, I think that part of it is that we as humans need to, and I think some of us people who are risk takers, people who are comfortable with risk, entrepreneurs, right? You know, we see the possibility in change. We see the opportunity. We see what there is to be gained. And we accept the losses as a natural part of the process for what we gain. And I think that that's an important mindset. And and to your point, there will be things that are lost. Like in order to live in a society where all people are equal, white folks are going to lose some stuff. And it's not going to be comfortable. And and this is where we've had uh, issues with rights for women, you know, the white dominant, the the male dominant groups don't want to necessarily just give up things, right? We've had to take it. So when we say, oh, we're celebrating a hundred years of women were given the vote, we weren't given anything. And actually I wanted to bring this up anyway, but I've been thinking about the hundred years of women's vote, you know, here in this country and the history of it being so white woman dominated. Yeah. Um, in in the storytelling of it, actually. Yeah, it hasn't women, been 100 years for Black women. It hasn't been 100 years for Black women. And Black women actually helped get the vote. They yeah. just aren't necessarily in the story. So that's happening in later in August. And there's a lot of lead up to, to that 100 year celebration. And so that will be a whole separate conversation on the Well Woman Show. But as we're wrapping up here, Tamara, is there anything you've shared a lot of really great information and, and good kind of um, provoking, like thought provoking questioning? Is there anything you want to challenge the audience? to do or or is there any idea that you want to share that you haven't? I, I think that I want to challenge people to to think about the gains and losses and think about what am I willing to lose? What's some unearned stuff that I'd be willing to lose? Does it mean that I have to lose the comfort that comes with being in a majority white space and learn to be comfortable in a majority non-white space? That you know I've had to learn from very early age to be comfortable being the only one in the room. I remember the first time my husband, who is white, being with him the first time that he was in a majority non-white space. And he was amazing. And he's like, and the, you know, and everybody embraced him. It was fantastic. And he was able to be comfortable with that. And he's, and, um, 
And there have been times where he was less comfortable. Yeah. But, um, but, but he didn't make it my problem, right? Like that was his stuff. Right. Um, and I think that's part of it is that, that there's some, some comfort, some privileges that we haven't earned or may not even recognize that we'll lose and to be okay. And to be willing to say, I'm kind of okay with that. And I'm kind of okay, not being the majority voice, or I'm also to be comfortable being the one who takes the risk to say something rather than people waiting for the person of the color person of color in the room to say what somebody just said was wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, People look at me and are like, say something. <laughs> it's like, you say something. Yeah. You put your neck out, right? So I think I want to challenge people to, to, to be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to stick your neck out, be willing to put your foot in it because you are, right? Like, you know, I, I, years ago I was, I volunteered with another organization. I was sitting with a group of people, a young woman who I've been working with for a couple years, who I adore, was disabled. And it was, you know, not the topic of what was happening. And a, another person at the table had this small figurine they carried. And I said, why do you want carry around this figurine? Look, it's missing a leg. The ear is broken off. And the woman who was disabled, who had lost two legs and an arm, looked at me and said, why are things without legs and things that are broken, not good enough to keep? And I'll tell you what, I looked at her and I, I put my foot in it and I owned it. And I will tell you, I have never made that mistake again. Yeah. I have caught myself and I, you know, it doesn't mean the thoughts and what, what inspired that thought went away. Now, when I have them, I'm like, that's my able-bodied privilege influencing yeah. my perceptions of this experience, right? That's such and- a tangible example. And I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate the very tangible challenge that you have posed here, which is really sometimes these things are so kind of vague and, and at the systems level that it's hard to say, okay, but what do I actually do, you know? And, and of course, as high achieving white people, we always want to do something. Yeah. <laughs> we want to yeah. do something. Um, and it's not always about doing, doing. Uh, it's about learning and listening as well. But when you are at the point of doing something, these challenges that you're giving are really tangible, like, you know, being uncomfortable, being okay with being uncomfortable. And the the very tangible example of being in a space where you are not the dominant identity in the room is great. And also putting your foot in it, like, and then owning it. And then (laughs) And then sticking your neck out and saying something and not relying on the only other non-dominant group people in the room to, to be the ones to say something. Yeah. 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 I think that's what people can do. People can vote, vote, vote. Um, We'll add that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that that's important. And I think when, when people are saying, you know, well, what do people of color want from us? That's what we want. That's what we want. That's an awesome place to end this conversation for now. We're not, we're not ending it. We're just going to save some goodness for later. But this was a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on and sharing yourself with the audience. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to be in dialogue with you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. There's a list of anti-racism resources at wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. And you can check out all the past episodes of the Well Woman Show featuring Black, Indigenous, and women of color at wellwomanlife.com slash women of color. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.